We're going to continue on with our series on truth and just living in a generation in which their desire is to discard the truth. And God's desire is to bring us back to this book here that he calls the word of God and that we would root ourselves in this truth and thereby rooting ourselves in a personal relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ. So this is God's goal. Um, to kind of kick off what I want to share with you this morning, I want to kind of invite you into what may have been the very first argument my wife, or then I was just courting her, that we had. I began to realize just how very different we were. Just how very, did you guys realize just how different my wife and I are? Yes. So there we were, and we're just, Meredith sits down. Something had happened, in all honesty, I can't remember. Something had happened to her, and she had truly gotten hurt and offended. And she was just working through it emotionally, so she sits down. I'm, I'm listening to her. I just thought, you know, I'm going to be that good guy, and I'm going to just listen to her heart. And she's just sharing her story with me. And I'm just saying, wow, okay, okay. And then suddenly, it's as if she presses a rewind, and she starts sharing the story with me again. And I begin to realize, something's not right here. Maybe I need to help her work through this, so I'm going to give her a solution to her problem. So I just, you know what, sweetheart? I really think, and I just begin, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was such wisdom from God. And she looks at me, and she just continues on, like she hadn't heard me. And she begins to share this story, and then she hits rewind again, and she's beginning to share the story with me yet again. And I realized she obviously didn't get this profound wisdom. I need to share it with her from a different perspective. So I get all the, I muster up all the creativity I can, and I begin to share a solution to her problem yet again. And she continues on to even more passionately to share this problem that is just so weighing her down. And then I realize. She's not listening to me. She's becoming stubborn. She doesn't want to listen to what God is trying to say to her. So I begin to correct her, rebuke her, and she gets hurt. And she starts the story all over again. And I'm thinking, <laughs> something's wrong here. And, and, and I, I'm frustrated. I, I'm beginning to wonder, who is this woman that I am courting? She is so, this is just not how we work through problems. Of course, I don't say it that way. I say it so much more gently. Right. I began to realize after we got into this argument, and she's just trying to, I still didn't get it. I began to realize she is very emotional. And my wife is emotional. I am not, at least not like that. And I began to realize, wow, maybe she just doesn't listen to solutions. She, she gets very defensive and argumentative. See, she's the guilty one in this argument, and I was simply trying to help. I am innocent. Now, guys, if right now you are agreeing with me, I need to pray for you. I needed, if I, I would have prayed for myself, and, and honestly, I did, and I, I would step back from these arguments, and I would say, what is wrong? It's like she's from Venus, and I'm from Mars. Well, I should write a book like hmm. Anyway, I began to realize how very different we were. See, the problem is that I grew up with a bunch of brothers. My sister was eight years older than me, a lot wiser than me, but I just didn't have that privilege to, you know, play, you know, 
she was beyond house, and I was playing football, and she certainly wouldn't do that. And I grew up with a lot of brothers. And I related with them like kind of like guys do on that level. Not that guys can't be emotional or understand what my wife was going through, but I certainly didn't. And I just didn't have a clue. I really didn't have a clue. My wife, she grew up with one sister. You know, so the estrogen in that home was like through the roof, and the testosterone in my home was like through the roof ten times. We had very, very different perspectives. For me, it was, let's solve this problem. And once you solve the problem, we, we move on, right? That's what you're supposed to do. Okay, guys, don't agree with me yet. There's no need to talk about it anymore from my wife. See, she's a verbal processor. She wasn't looking for solutions. You know, as I began to realize, and this is after several years, she already had it figured out. She wasn't coming to me to share the problem so that I could just espouse such divine, God-anointed wisdom. God had already been speaking to her. She needed to process this, and she did it by talking. For me, it's all up here. I think about it. You know, the only time I talk about a problem is because I'm looking for a solution. So that's, of course, what my wife is going to do. Not. That's just not how she works. And to this day, I guess she still hasn't figured it out. No, I have finally began to understand how she works. And she has realized how I work. And so to head off the arguments, when she is going through something and it's emotional, she begins by saying, now, Mike, I want to share something with you but just don't say anything. That's a good heads up. I, I say, okay, I'm just going to be silent. And we are learning how each other views life and how we each respond to life. My solutions, see, I wasn't really listening. So as a result, she felt like she needed to share the story with me again because I just wasn't connecting emotionally and I wasn't expressing that. I wasn't, as we say today, affirming her emotions. So she felt, Mike's not getting it. I'm going to tell him the story again. And he's, he's, he's not affirming the emotions. It's like he doesn't understand. He just wants solutions. I'm going to have to tell him the story again. And so as a result, we both completely misunderstood. We were so different. We still are so different. We've kind of moved this way, but we are still so very different. And guess what? I am so glad that my wife is very different than I am. Okay, maybe not all the time, but I am so glad that she is so very different than I am. I, I, I would like to believe that she is appreciative of how different I am than she is, but see, here's where this is going. We treat God this way. Not that God is on our level, but see, that is our problem. We think God is on our level. My wife and I, were on the same level. But see, God is not. God has a very different perspective than I do. Our problem, church, listen to this. Our problem is that we want to judge God and judge his word according to how man would respond in these situations. What I would say in those situations and what I would do. And so consequently, we judge God. Now, if you're taking notes, the title of the message today is Judging God. I want to look at three different accusations. I mean, there's many more, but I want to look at three general accusations 
that this generation, and hey, I've asked these questions or made these accusations myself. So I understand, at least in part, where this generation is coming from. But the solution is so vastly different than the solution that the world today is offering. See, God's perspective is different. We want God to see things. We, 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 we want God to act and speak from our perspective and our standards on what love is. So we judge God on our definition of love, our finite, fallen definition of love, and we expect him to be just like that. And when he's not, hey, something's wrong, either with God or with the Bible. We expect God to live up to our definition of justice. Come on, what is this? God, you're so harsh. You're so cruel. You're mean-spirited. You're like a child throwing temper. I don't understand this. And what this generation has done is since God is not like me, I reject his word. Do you see? And we judge God based on our perspective and our standards. So let me now share these three accusations that we can levy against God. And then what does God's word have to say? And I want us to really think through this, because church, maybe in your maturing process, you've been able to work through some of these accusations, but our generation has not. And as a result, in judging God, God has failed. That is not the God that I want to worship or serve. And so they get rid of the Bible. Or they kind of pick and choose portions of the Bible. That, okay, yeah, I like this. This fits my definition of love. This fits my understanding of justice. But the rest of it doesn't, so I throw it out. It's either all or none, church. This is either God's word or it is not. It is either truthful and trustworthy. Remember, we looked at inerrancy last week. Truthful and trustworthy, all of it, or it, none of it is. Not parts of it. Once we say that only parts of it are, can I ask you this? What parts are? Because once you believe you have the right to pick and choose what parts are and what parts aren't, guess whose shoes you just stepped into? God's. But that's what our generation does. And they want to judge God based on their definitions and their perspective. I see, I get that. So here's the first accusation. God is egotistical. Yes, he's egotistical. Turn with me to, Rep, to Exodus chapter 20. I mean, why should God condemn us for being self-centered and arrogant when he demands that we worship him? What's that all about? Have you ever had a friend, maybe a skeptic, ask you that question? Maybe you've read a blog, so irritated you. It's like, why don't they get it? It's because this is how the world thinks. God must be like me. And they'll even say, after all, aren't we made in the image of God? Come on. Yes, we are. But we're going to get into just how different. We're going to get into this idea of the otherness of God. And this is where the answer completely lies, in the otherness of God. Why would God, when he tells us, hey, don't be the center of attention, don't, don't want people to applaud you, don't want people to, you know, 
say how great you are and honor you and lift you up. Don't be looking for that. Don't be self-centered when God himself doesn't ask but demands our worship for us to serve him, for us to be totally, completely committed to him. Are you there with me in Exodus 20? I'm going to read the first six verses. And God spoke, remember he's on Mount Sinai. There's smoke, there's lightning, thunder, and so on. <clears throat> Trumpet blasts even. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, he's exclusive here. He's the only one. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I'm going to stop there. I think it's enough for us to kind of understand as the world begins to make these accusations, what is up with this? God wants to be the center of everything, but he tells us not to be. Number one, <clears throat> see, our problem is that God created us to worship him. That's the hub. Of the, he created me to worship him. And the world says, hang on. That really sounds egotistical. But let's understand what we're really looking at. Number one, if God is infinite... Can I just tell you, church, he has no needs. God does not need your worship. Let, let that truth just sink in. God does not need your love. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't even need your service. Because he is infinite and being infinite, by definition, he has no needs. Every need that he could possibly have, they're fulfilled. Because he's infinite. So do you see this? God, the infinite God, has no needs whatsoever. I am infinite, however. Excuse me, I am finite, however. Did I really say that? I am finite and fallen. Sinful. The heart is desperately wicked. Beyond cure, apart from Christ. Beyond cure. Who can understand it? So the person who's judging God is missing. He's infinite. No needs. I am finite. I'm fallen. My heart's wicked. Beyond my understanding. I don't even get it. So who am I? How can I even begin to judge God and accuse him? See, Jesus was finite in his earthly ministry, in his flesh, in his humanity, but he was not fallen. Even so, though, he was dependent upon the Father. He needed God the Father. And because of this, he pressed into the Father. And, and, and most particularly, may I highlight the Garden of Gethsemane, in which he is for 
Two hours at least pressing in, wondering, why can't you guys do this? Well, it's because the disciples could not pray like that because they didn't understand the immensity and the intensity of the moment. So consequently, Jesus, understanding what's going to happen at the cross, he is pressing into God, the, the wrath of God, the cup of his wrath being poured out upon him. And as a human, just understanding the, the intensity and the immensity of that issue, they didn't understand it. Jesus did. And he pressed into God so that he came to this conclusion, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was dependent upon the Father. But see, he's not just finite, or we're not just finite like Jesus was in his earthly ministry. We are also fallen. And because of my fallenness, there's a whole lot of baggage. Even as a follower of Jesus, I am still fallen. I'm being restored as we sang in that song, and I love that song. He's taking the wasteland, and he's turning it into something beautiful. But guess what? I'm still not there. I am in process. When I reach heaven, that's when I will reach that resurrection body. No more sin, no more pain. The fallenness that pulls at me and, my, and triggers my flesh, gone, praise God. Jesus did not experience that, but I do. So I am finite but also fallen, and I bring baggage, a bag of needs in my relationship with the Father. Consequently, because of my finiteness and my fallenness, I desperately need God. God created me because and, and knew that I needed to worship him, I needed to pray to him, I needed to trust him because of that finiteness, because of that form, because of my needs. Every creature that God created has needs. Angels have needs because they are not infinite. They are finite. They're not fallen. The demons are. I'm not talking about them. God's angels circled about his throne. Worship him because they need to do it. It's not because God needs them to worship him, but because they need to worship him. They need to rely on him and look to him. In him and only in him is life is power, is the ability to exist. He is everything. And as a result, even the angels are in need, and they desperately need to worship him. So it is true that God created me to worship him, but not because he needs that. No, it's because I need that. I need to worship him. Because I am in need. I need to serve him. I need to fully trust and rely upon him and look to him and no one else. This relationship between God and I, it must be exclusive. And if it's not, Scripture calls that, listen, adultery. Spiritual adultery. See, this is why God himself uses this term jealous. I'm a jealous God. It's similar but so very different than the jealousy of a husband whose wife is unfaithful. God, it is not that he needs this complete attention, but because he knows I need it. 
And as that God who is infinite in love, he wants to protect me. Have you ever tried loving a child and directing them to do the right thing and protect them? And they are just so obstinate. They're just, they're just going to do, they're going to walk off that cliff no matter what. No. And you try to direct them and there's a stubbornness there. What a picture of humanity. God so graciously, come on, you need, I need to protect you. You need to move this way. And who do you think you are, huh? God or something? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. You see, he's God. I am not. And I desperately need him. I need him to corral and direct me. And he, so in that way, he's jealous. He wants to protect. God does not need. See, it's me who needs. I need to worship and I need to serve him. We can't judge God based on our perspective. Here's accusation number two. God is childish and throws temper tantrums. Let me read to you from Exodus 32. While Moses is up on Mount Sinai, you probably remember this story. Most of you have seen Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, right? You remember when he's coming down and what's happening while he's up on Mount Sinai, what's happening down below? They're form they've created their own God. Commandment number one and two broken like that. And so very symbolically, Moses throws the tablets down, they're broken. But then here's what God says in verse nine and verses nine and ten. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. In other words, they're stubborn. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, that I will make you into a great nation. It's like God just says, okay, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Or, you know what? Just give me some space here, Moses. Step out of my way. Come on now. It's, it's me and them and I'm going to destroy them. Get Clear the way. And though it sounds like that, Number one, the first thing we need to realize is God is testing Moses here. God wants to see Moses. Are you going to step into the gap? It would be totally just for God to destroy them for their sin. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. He would, he would have every right to destroy them like that. Send lightning down. He would have that right. I'm going to get to that why question in just a moment, but he would have that right. And so he's absolutely right. Okay, Moses... Leave me alone. Step aside here because I'm going to destroy them. And God is wanting Moses to step in and not get in his, who do you think you are? Not like that, but God. See, Moses, you have every right to do this, but I am asking, please be merciful. And our generation looks at a situation like this and says, see, God throws temper tantrums. He has no mercy, except, of course, when it's convenient, and this wasn't, he got ticked, he got really angry, and he's just going to blow them out. He's going to totally annihilate them. But the way he words this, he says, he's, he's luring Moses. Moses, I need you as their leader to step up 
I need you to appeal to me. And that's exactly what Moses does. And Moses appeals. He is that good shepherd to the people of Israel who have strayed and gone off. And God, having every right to annihilate them, the shepherd says, please. They're stubborn people. That Mike Curtis, he's stubborn. He wants his way. He doesn't understand his wife. He just, he's arrogant. But you know what, God? I, I think that you've put some good in him. I'm still looking for it, but I, I'm sure it's there. But you know what? I'm just going to ask and appeal to you. Spare his life. See, that was, that was Moses' heart as he steps in. His brother Aaron was at the hub of all of this. Wow. So God tests Moses. But I think we need to understand that God is patient. He is forgiving. It's just that the, this generation says, you know, God should always be that way. God should always be forgiving. Always, always be merciful. So will we judge God from our finite perspective again? And will we, or will we trust his word to reveal his nature? That, by the way, is vastly different than ours. That is the otherness of God. I want to look at just a few passages here. Number one, John 3, 36, and it says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Now listen to this. For God's wrath remains on him. Wow. God's wrath remains on him. Why would it remain on him? Just because he doesn't believe? Understand, I'm going to read another passage, Ephesians 2, 3. It says this. Excuse me. Um, yes, 2, 3. All of us who lived among them, the ungodly, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. What is that nature? He actually tells us in verse 1, it's our sin nature. Because of our transgressions and sins, that separated us from God. It has pushed us away from God. It's not pushed God away, it's pushed us away from God. It's alienated us from him. And since he is the source of all life, where does that leave us when we are unplugged from that source of life, it leaves us dead. It leaves us sinners, enemies of God. See, I'm, the, our generation, we, and, and this was me, hey, I don't feel like an enemy of God, but that's only because I'm the sinner and he's the holy one. And I don't, I just didn't get that. I was completely unplugged, completely disconnected from all that is called life that's found in God, and as a result, I was dead. I was his enemy. I was arrogant, because I thought I could fix it. If I just did enough good works, right? I was distant. 
my, my understanding was clouded at best. I was God's enemy, dead in my sins. And the result of that is that God's wrath was upon me. This is, this is kind of hard for us to grasp, God's wrath. I mean, like, when you're that angry, don't you have to be, like, really hurt? But if God doesn't have needs, how is he hurt? So why so much anger? And so that's how we think. Again, that's our human perspective, and we're not understanding the otherness of God. Now, let, let's view it this way. See, we understand the sin offense. Have you ever been sinned against? Uh, anyone here who has never been sinned against, thank you very much. We've all been sinned against. Did that ever hurt you? Ever an example in your life in which when you were sinned against, it hurt you? Oh, absolutely. And some of those very deeply. Well, sin offends God, but here's the difference. God, in his personhood, because that's when we get offended, that's where we get hurt. God in his personhood is infinitely holy. See, his holiness is what's offended. Our sin offends his holiness. Let's go one step further. My sin offends his infinite holiness. So what does that make my sin? See, it's now an infinite offense. Do you see this? My sin is an infinite offense against God. It doesn't feel this way. Many people have asked me, so Mike, so I've lived 70 years, and I suppose if I were to die today, then I should get 70 years of punishment. So why is hell eternal? I, I get that question. So if it takes you 10 seconds to steal a car, should you be in jail for 10 seconds? Or... If it takes you only one second to pull the trigger on that gun and it kills someone, should you spend only one second in jail, a prison? Of course not. For many states, it's now life for life. Wow. Why? It's because of the nature of the offense. That's what we don't get. Because we're not infinitely holy. We're barely holy. And if that by God himself, we don't get holiness. And so as a result, we judge God based on our lack of holiness. And we think, why aren't you like me? Why are, why are you so angry? If you were to cut me, I can guarantee you I would bleed. As a matter of fact, I can't not bleed. It, unless, of course, I'm dead. And seeing that I'm not yet, if you cut me, I'm going to bleed. I can't stop that. I can't, I can't just go ahead and cut me. I'm going to try really hard. Okay, I'm not going to bleed. I'm not going to bleed. If I just believe, I'm still going to bleed. Because that's my nature. God in his nature of infinite holiness bleeds when you cut him. He is offended because of our sin. Actually, remember, my sin is an infinite offense. God bleeds. That bleeding, so to speak, is his wrath. That is just who God is. 
And that is what we only just partially understand. So when we say, wow, God, you wanted to wipe out the whole nation? That is so unjust. I'm sorry, based on what definition of justice? Yours, right? As a finite fallen creature, we judge God like he's a man. And he's not. And so, consequently, we, we just don't understand this concept of God's wrath in the face of our offense. And we do understand injustice, at least to a degree. But see, we also get angry because we're hurt. That's emotional. God doesn't get angry because you hurt his little feel feelings. That is not God. But that's us. And so we judge God based on that. The reason why God is angry is one reason. He is just. Also understand that his justice, his holiness, whether you're aware of this or not, it flows from his love. That begins to blow our minds. God's wrath flows from his love? What? See, God is not loving, loving, loving. He's holy, 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 because holy describes him. But God isn't loving, loving, loving. He is love. That is his essence. And his nature, his, nature, his attributes, holiness, flows from his nature, who he is. It's not as if love is on this side of the continuum and justice is on this side of the continuum and we always equate this, or, or justice rather, yes, his love is over here, his justice and holiness is over here. And so as a result, we kind of, okay, we see this as a continuum. And it's not. God is perfectly holy and just and perfectly loving. So let me word it this way. When God wanted to wipe out Israel that day, he did it from his love. Hmm. He did it from his love. Now, I'm going to enter into an area that I don't understand completely, and I'm going to be very brief. As a parent, I get it a little bit. But I will protect my children from any enemy, even if I feel their life is being threatened, I will take theirs. I'll do that. Because there's no way in this world that I will allow you that opportunity to take my child's life. So I will take yours. See, that's just. We read the Bible and, wait, wait, hang on a second, Mike. And this is the third accusation. God is contradictory. God, let me make sure I'm not jumping ahead. Oh, here we go, yes. God is vengeful. And this is where we're going to get into this idea of hell. After all, Exodus 20, 13 says, do not kill. And yet just a chapter later, verse of 21, 14, it says, to concerning the one 
who, well, I'm sorry, the circumstance there. Just give me one moment. I want to read it to you so I, I'm not paraphrasing. He says, but if man schemes and kills another man, deliberately take him away from my altar and put him to death. Wait a second, God. You just said don't kill, and then you turn around and say, kill him. Come on, you're so confusing. What do you have, multiple personalities? You're changing your mind just within one chapter? See, this is the protectiveness of God. This is God saying when another one takes another person's life, his life will be required. And the reason is, number one, that's a principle, but number two, he wants everyone else to take warning. Hey, you try to take my child's life, my wife's life, I will take yours, and if people know that, they're probably going to think twice about taking my Curtis, the, 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 the life of one of my Curtis's children or his wife. Does that surprise you that Pastor Mike would take someone's life? I, I think it's because sometimes we, Mike, what about turning the other cheek? That's a whole other sermon, I'm sorry. And, and maybe I can get into that. And I'm not giving that as an excuse, but I do believe there's such a thing as a just war. I do believe that the government bears the sword, like here, with the authority of God to do that. Romans 13 tells me this. There are circumstances. If you try to take my life, I will defend myself. I will. And if necessary, and I've never had to do this, and I hope I never will have to. Where our nation is going, I hope I never have to. I, I have no problem defending my family or defending myself and taking someone's life, but I hope I never have to. And as I read through the scriptures, I see that similar, not same, similar justice in the heart of God. Our generation, for the most part, does not. Except, of course, when it's really bad, like pedophilia. Then the world begins, well, maybe we should take their life. See, now we're starting to agree on something. Okay. Wow. But how bad does the offense have to be? Well, I'm not going to get into this, but understand, I'm going to need to rely on the Bible because I see through a glass darkly. I get things only partially. I must be anchored in the Word of God. I can't trust my own sense of truth. What, what is, apart from God, what is truth? Is it how I define love? In which case, man, God broke his commandments all over the place. Or maybe I'm the one that needs to change my definition of love. And the only way to do that is by studying the word of God. Matthew 13, and, I, and I'm going to be brief on this. It, we live in a generation that wants to erase the concept of hell. That is the way it is. I actually understand this because hell is not something that I completely understand either. I would actually be scared, to be honest with you, if I understood it completely. I would be scared. 
because I would probably think I'm self-deceived or something or, or arrogant because in my heart of hearts, I am still finite and fallen. And hell touches on that aspect of the otherness of God and his infinite holiness and justice and love that I can barely understand a little bit. You know, grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So please don't try to tell me you understand God's love completely. You'd be a liar or just self-deceived, either one. The truth is, I don't. I'm at least willing to accept that, and I do wrestle with hell. But when I read my Bible, it is very clear. I am not going to judge God based on my definition of what I think mercy or grace or forgiveness or love or justice is. I can't do that. The Bible is very clear. Matthew 13. Sorry, I, somehow I lost that. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable, and then he steps outside of the parable when he is with his disciples alone, and he explains the parable. So what I'm about to read to you, he does not use parabolic language, which is symbolic. And he uses this concept of a furnace. But the people in our generation, look at it. See, he uses furnace. Again, he's using metaphor. No, he's not. He's explaining it, and he's taking it out of the parable, which uses symbolic language, and he's now putting it in practical, understandable truth that is real, tangible. It's not symbolic. It's literal. This is what his literal interpretation says. As the weeds, excuse me, this is 13 verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, now he transitions, so it will be at the end of the age. He explains, the son of man, that's not a parable, excuse me, that's not symbolic, will send out his angels, that's not symbolic either, it's literal, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, they will be thrown Excuse me, they will throw them, who's they? The angels will throw them, the sinners, into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, this is not symbolic, will shine like the sun. Now that is a simile that he introduces there. In the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. But our generation does not want to hear. This is hard. I don't go to God and judge him because of hell. I go to the word of God and I say, is it true? Have what I've learned about the reality of hell, is it true? And as I'm reading a passage like this, I begin to understand it is very literal. It is very real. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says this. Excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says this. Starting with verse 6, God is just. That's how he begins this. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when? 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not follow God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he brings on the day he comes to be glorified that's at his second coming in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed this includes you because you believed our testimony to you hell is real hell is everlasting hell is just and if my offense to God's holiness is really an infinite offense to his infinite holiness, how does that infinite offense ever get paid for? This finite man would need to suffer forever without end to satisfy that infinite offense. Unless, listen to me, unless the infinite God paid for that infinite offense. That's the only way. It's the only way God can legitimately forgive my sin by taking the very life of God himself who is infinite, infinite in love. Jesus, in his infinite love, then stepped into my place. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it is only in Jesus that we can then find eternal life. To have that sin washed away. To not have to suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. And once I trust in Jesus, Scripture says he is never angry with me again. Because his wrath has been satisfied for all eternity. No condemnation. There's no anger. There's no wrath. And when, this blows my mind, and, and when I offend God, cut him, if you will, he does not bleed. Because that offense has already been paid for. It, it, now I'm, I'm kind of shifting metaphors here, but the truth is God's, disposition towards Mike Curtis has been forever changed because at age 14, I trusted in Jesus Christ and I surrendered my heart to him and I gave it to him. I committed my life to him. That's what faith is, faith in Jesus. And consequently, that sin being paid for, there is no wrath ever again, ever again. And in this way, God's wrath is satisfied. It's not like Jesus' death on the cross kind of put his arm around God and say, okay, God, it's going to be okay. And let me just calm you down now. That's not what I'm talking about. The demands of God's holiness is life for life. That is the nature of holiness, and it can never change. That is what we don't get. That is so intense and immense. Wow. But God's infinitely holy. 
So this is where it all goes. When you get this, and the otherness of God, and his infinite holiness rooted in his infinite love, if I could word it that way, then we get God's redemption plan. Then we under, begin to understand his grace because I fully deserve all that I have coming to me, which includes hell. But God has said to me, Mike, no. My son Jesus has stepped in. He's taken all of that punishment that you deserve. See, when I understand I was an enemy, when I understand that I offended God infinitely, I tremble in his presence. And then I begin to realize, but he has washed me clean. I have no need to tremble in his presence for fear of his wrath. But because he's holy and I'm not, I will tremble. But because of his wrath, his wrath will not be poured out upon me. That's his grace. I can now enter into his presence. I can have this intimate relationship with Jesus, with God through Jesus Christ. That is grace. That's redemption. And that, that is throughout my life. God is on my side. I constantly need his grace because I'm finite and fallen. I will always need him. So the implications of this message is not just for salvation. Church, it is for every day of your life. Every day. And when we get this, there is no accusation that the devil has against me that sticks. Are they true? Yes, they're true. Mike Curtis is a sinner. But then God steps in. Jesus steps in. And he says, hey, enough of this. I took the penalty. And every day now, I get to walk in this grace, hopefully understanding it day by day a little bit more. And when I read in my Bible, okay, this is love. I'm trying to understand love. And when I see God this way, I'm not going to judge him or accuse him. I'm going to say, God, I don't get this. Help me understand how wide and long and high and deep is your love. Because I still don't get it today. I'm 60 years old. I've been a pastor for 35 years. I still don't completely get it. I'm trying. I struggle sometimes. But it is only because of my finiteness and fallenness. For us to say that God must be like me, and therefore I can't trust his word, that's arrogant. To accept this otherness of God, that then prompts me to be completely reliant upon him. I must look to him now every day. That's what I invite you to today, church. I understand the accusations. I understand the accusations that, that the world throws at God. But church, let's get this. He is so infinitely different than you are. And he is perfectly loved and perfectly holy.